Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Hanma, and this week's episode has been an emotional roller coaster to edit. Kane and Tal join me again to unpack the film Interstellar. And my goodness, we did not see COVID coming. This was recorded back before the crisis really hit Australia. And you can totally tell because we talk about the bushfires as if they're the worst thing we'll encounter this decade. And about social isolation and video chat lag as if it's something you'll only experience on a spaceship or inside NORAD. The joke is on us. Kane and Tal do a podcast together called Movies with Kane and Tal, which is fantastic. I highly recommend you go and subscribe right now. The Space Junk Pod is now hosted on Fireside FM. If you have any technical difficulties, please let me know. My email is thespacejunkpodcast at gmail.com. I take that back. It is thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter, Insta, or TikTok as at Annie Hanma. And I realize that saying if you've got technical issues at the front of this episode and then expecting you to know that you have technical issues if you can't access this episode is very complicated and difficult. And unless you can interfere with space time in the way they do in Interstellar, you're going to struggle. But um, I will say that episodes generally come out once a week. So if you're not getting one once a week, then um, do let me know. And finally, if you haven't seen what I'm up to over on YouTube, you should definitely check it out. There are awesome video interviews with space people from around the world going up every day of two. And all of, us, all of it is presented from my space desk in very loud space-themed attire. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's sort of about Interstellar, but it's mostly about love, life, and the universe. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Okay, then. Right. <laughs> Moving right along. Goodness me, if the ears had walls. If the ears had walls. <laughs> if the ears had walls, indeed. Um, we are back for the next film, Interstellar. People know about Interstellar, right? It's it's pretty good. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that the majority of listeners is probably particularly if they're in space have seen this film. So uh, I, probably I, needs. I imagine so, especially since like Interstellar, in terms of like the last you know several years worth of movies, like it uh, along with stuff like Gravity mm. have, have like a very you know very specific place in you know, recent film history because they really did help kickstart this. Well, I'd consider like the more psychiatric space movies, like stuff like The Martian and Ad Astra and even stuff like High Life, in terms of like looking at the real like psychological effects that like space travel and that kind of like, you know, being that far away from home from everyone you love 
you know, can how that affects a person mentally, mm-hmm. which I honestly really love about Interstellar because it is all about the the strain of relationships across, you know, literally across space the boundaries time. of time and space. <laughs> yeah, look, I I watched this um, most of this on a flight, and then I think we were landing or something, and I missed like the last forty five minutes. So I had seen most of the movie and didn't know what happened. So mm. then you messaged him and I was like, it's done. <laughs> because I needed to see the end of it and I needed an excuse to, to sit down and watch a three-hour movie again. It is so long. It's so long. But it, 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 it is definitely one of those films that feels like it needs that length because there is, like, so much being discussed in it. Like, before we even leave Earth, mm. there's so much being discussed in terms of, like, the society that's being built around it. And... What we were talking before in terms of, like, you know, Santa Claus conquers the Martians having its own form of propaganda. There's a literal propaganda in Interstellar in mm. regards to, like, you know, the Apollo, you know, the moon landing mm. didn't actually happen. It was a ruse just to bankrupt the Soviet Union, mm. which, apart from giving me way too many flashbacks to, you know, having encountered people who say that kind of shit in earnest online, it also... It, it's a bit like the um, <laughs> like what I discussed with you in regards to the rationale behind the um, the War Boys from Mad Max Fury Road. Right, right, yeah. In terms of you know there actually being like a proper reason behind mm. that lie being told because you want like if you're in a situation where you know the Earth is dying, there isn't enough food, you need people to be like mentally planted mm. on Earth, and not thinking elsewhere. So just like fabricate that we haven't even left Earth yet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And what, just as, as, as a holistic experience for me, having started this podcast with you, okay, and when you emailed me about wanting to do, have us come on as guests, I said, okay, cool, I'll, let's do Interstellar. But I didn't watch it until just this week. In the interim between saying that I wanted to watch Interstellar and then actually watching it, We've had all these apocalyptic events happening in New South Wales. Mm. We've had bushfires, we've had floods. And it then really there did was look this... like the blight. It really did. Yeah, like yeah. it was this crazy, is, is, is the end of the world? No, like it was this really kind of... And I the don't dust storms. Stuff, but and yeah, the, and it was so, very much like the smoky air that yes. we had. And so the smoky air, and I couldn't see... Um, the mountain, I was telling Kane today, I haven't been able to see the mountain that I could see out from my place for months because it's either been shrouded in smoke or rain cloud. And so in this interim period, I'm watching all this stuff going on and I'm, it reminded me of the beginning of Interstellar and then it's all kind of finished now and then I sat down to watch it again mm. and looked at it from that whole kind of, like I really put myself in that, um, imagine. Yeah, that, that, that we got to the point. Are we? Are we? Are we fucking up the planet badly enough that at some point we're gonna get to there? Like I s- sort of started thinking. I've always, I'm always an optimist. Mm. Always, I always believe that we'll find a way to figure stuff out. But lately, very lately, between that watching first half of that film and then watching the rest of it, I've started to think to myself, I'm not sure we can figure this out. I don't know if we're taking the right steps. And I don't know if that's really not actually out of the realms of possibility in the near future. 
Hey guys, Annie here, just jumping in quickly to say that when we recorded this, it was just after the bushfires and the floods in Australia and before COVID-19 really hit us. And so in that context, um, this particular section has a cruel kind of irony to it in that we thought we were through the worst of things. How wrong we were. Anyway, now I will get back to Kane. Which is also kind of fascinating because in regards to um, like what I said before, the psychiatric mm. kind of um, space movie. Uh, um, one of the other main threads in that is that in terms of showing spaces like the kind of environment where we need to band together in order to survive, mm. Interstellar itself is a very optimistic movie. As much as it like it is, you know, filled with so much you know misery, people are dying, the Earth is dying, we need to find somewhere else. There is so much about it that really feels like. The, you know, Christopher, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan, who mm. wrote the script together, truly believe that, well, you know, it'll all work out in the end. Because, well, and honestly, the main argument I have for that would be this film's version of artificial intelligence with the TARS and Case robots, mm -hmm. which back when I first watched this in cinemas when it first came out and now is still one of my favorite robot designs ever. Mm. Like they're very they're like, awesome. like they're almost like Jenga blocks. And yeah. Just like they're rather rudimentary and just and especially with like it's not just that they're programmed with sense of humor, honesty, empathy, but degrees of which. Yeah. Yeah. The parameters can be flexed. I mean, that's such a clever concept, isn't it? It, it really is, especially since like in regards to AI in you know space movies, like with the golden standard. Um, HAL 9000 from mm. 2001 Space Odyssey, that is easily like the worst case scenario, like the worst of humanity turned into machinery that basically just screws us over. Sure. Whereas with this, with, you know, the case in TARS robots, that's easily the most optimistic because it shows that, you know, actually giving, you know, artificial life this level of, you know, intelligence, not just like strict mental intelligence, but emotional intelligence mm -hmm. as well, isn't going to completely screw us over in the long run. If anything, it's going to be more of a boon to us than we realize. Yeah. yeah, I felt it was like drawing on the tradition of HAL, but also potentially incorporating a little bit of Star Wars with C-3PO and, yeah. and R2-D2 yeah, and their yeah, kind yeah, of yes. and the quirkiness. I, I tell you, you've heard of um, the, the Turing test, right? The, the, the artificial intelligence test mm. to you know, tell if it actually is sentient. Well, it's a subset of that called um, Ebert's Law, named after Roger Ebert, which is basically the same idea, except it's with how you prove um, an artificial intelligence has a sense of humor, right. that, that kind of thing. And especially with like the conversations between um, the robot and Matthew McConaughey's Cooper, in terms of like, you know, they're constantly making jokes, you want me to turn down the humor <laughs> setting if you're keep doing this, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was very quirky in that way. Um, I want to cut in the trailer mm, yeah. um so we'll do that now mm -hmm. a little late cool and we had a flag it's an indian surveillance drone solar cells power an entire farm what'd you do murph uh, she didn't do nothing murphy's law you're a well-educated man coop and a trained pilot and an engineer the world doesn't need any more engineers we didn't run out of planes and television sets. We ran out of food. Dad, why did you name me after something that's bad? Oh, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. 
It means that whatever can happen, will happen. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. And this is the mission you were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. I have no idea when you're coming back. We must reach far beyond our own lifespans. We must think not as individuals, but as a species. We must confront the reality of interstellar travel. Murph, I love you forever. Um, I so I first saw this film when it came out, and I watched it in IMAX, wow. um, the Darling Harbour one, before wow. it got knocked down. For international listeners, it was like the biggest screen in the Southern Hemisphere. It was amazing. I saw it in 3D in IMAX in the middle of the back row, um, like the night it came out or something. I don't know how I just did, uh, and I was so blown away by it and how incredible the visuals were the soundtrack, it was just this most amazing film that I went back and saw it again twice in that one week in IMAX in 3D. So I kind of, um, because I had that thing, I think that it made a bit of an emotional impact on me. And so I always tend to forgive some of the stuff in it because I think it's still a great movie. But I know that some people I've spoken to, especially in the space community, take issue with, bits of the science that aren't quite right or or things like that. But didn't they – I mean, they consulted with someone, right? It, it, there was, it was yeah. on Kip Thorne, That's right. I yeah. think. So that yeah. was the same person who um, was a main consultant on um, Contact with um, Jodie Foster, like that 90s right. movie, which honestly, in terms of, like, hard science, it the ending is just as jarring in terms of just, like, whoa, what, what, what the hell's going on? <laughs> so I actually have a um, – a great claim to fame here, which is that I have met Kip Thorne and came just like, <laughs> like almost spat his water across the table. Um, so yeah, I threw through my brother, who's a theoretical physicist and was doing his PhD at Caltech um, around the time that Interstellar came out. I found myself at a barbecue at Kip Thorne's house oh and God. sat in his kitchen and had a chat to him about the making of the film. <gasps> Um, and I also went in his, uh, oh, he has a, like a, a swimming pool and a spa. And I was also in his swimming pool and spa Oh my many God. years ago. Damn. So, um, yeah, so it was a, a pretty interesting experience and speaking to Kip Thorne, well, first of all, he's really cool and I really like him. 
Um, and secondly, he has an awesome house and (laughs) (laughs) like it has a pool and a spa. Um, and thirdly, I think for him being involved in the making of this film was really a labor of love. And it's with him that the whole idea of the movie started. Well, and it turns out that he was really keen to do the visualization of what it would be like to go into a black hole. And right. doing that was really expensive because you need a bunch of software to visualize it. I think that the official number was like something crazy, like 800 terabytes of yeah. data were used just to render everything. So he was like, I want to do this thing. And so basically found a, a, a movie project and built the movie around this, this moment where you see what it looks like to go into the black hole. And and they visualize the whole black hole and all of that stuff on the screen in 3D. And so for him, that was his focus. He was really interested in that. But he had a great involvement with the rest of the film as well and all of the science in it. And he actually released a book called The Science of Interstellar, which you can read if you're interested. It is very interesting. But he said that he, one of his highlights was working with Anne Hathaway, who um, apparently studied up so much for her role that she had the equivalent of a Caltech bachelor's degree in physics by the time they finished filming, which he thought was pretty impressive. It's very, <laughs> sounds almost tame for method acting compared to like some of the like really out right, yeah, stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, she didn't, is, she didn't go and live up. in the wilderness for 10 years, <laughs> like eating only the, the leaves that he pulled from the yurt or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, but it's still pretty cool. Um, and, and the visuals definitely are like the main, as far as I'm concerned, the main selling point behind the whole thing. No, no. <sighs> no, you tell. Oh, no. Oh, I... oh, 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 main initial selling point because okay. because the, the, the effects studio behind this, um, Double Negative, had done a lot of work with Christopher Nolan in the past. So the same people did Inception, so like the, the city folding itself in half kind of yeah, effect that's yeah. kind of echoed here. Mm. That was them. And in terms of like really like bake, breaking the walls of reality, well, like these guys really know their stuff. They're the same studio yeah. that did a lot of work on um, Doctor Strange, which is all about like oh, yeah. imposing one's will on reality and changing it as they see fit, which that whole negative seems to be all over, especially with like how like expansive and just kind of like mind bending the visuals actually are to the point where I'm both disappointed and thankful that I didn't see it in IMAX because for one I would have gotten the the full effect of it but on the other hand it really felt like if if I saw that on the biggest screen possible it would actually like get to me like too much like like we're in a little mini Cthulhu moment yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely all I I meant was um, I I love the film I love the characters I love the story I love the, the connection between them the dialogue everything about it for me in fact so much to the point that I didn't really notice the visuals that much like I wasn't it wasn't really? d- didn't focus much on it I, I wasn't I didn't look at it and go oh wow look how they've depicted space here like at all right it's a it is a film that um I think has a very strong emotional yes storyline yeah and it is one of the only films that consistently makes me tear up, yeah. I've got to say. It, it, same here, honestly. And that's why I um, corrected myself with the initial selling point. Because yeah. for me, my favorite scenes were just like um, Cooper and Murph, you know, gave these, you know, time-delayed messages from each other, which, mm-hmm. like, that's really heartbreaking. The idea that just, like, 
I was literally only gone for an hour in my time and like so many years have passed. Yeah. It, it actually reminded me of this um this anime that I watched like years and years ago called Voices of a Distant Star, uh-huh. which is basically the same idea as this. It, it's like a short twenty minute film about this about this guy and a girl where the girl is like this me- mecha pilot who has to fight like an intergalactic war and they text message each other across space and time. So it's like she sends a message. 10 years later, he gets it back on Earth kind of thing. And just that emotional mm. disconnect. Like, it, it, it's almost like making a trip like that requires a form of, like, emotional deadness. Like, uh, like with um, Matt Damon's sudden appearance. Yeah. Or, like, the idea of just, like, you know, the less, con- less like, tangible connections you have with the Earth, mm-hmm. the, more, the less likely it is for kind of, you know, the social isolation, like, space madness that mm. you can which admittedly the film itself debunks in regards to how Matt Damon turns out. But. Well, they all go a little bit, you know, a little bit crazy in their own way at certain points, except yeah. maybe maybe Anne Hathaway's character, who's, I've got to say, like, remarkably solid. And I, um, I can't, every time I see her in a film, I can't help but think of The Devil Wears Prada <laughs> and her fabulous role in that, which having watched more recently is quite problematic in some of its messaging around Mm -hmm. relationships and women and so on. However, however, I did think there was one line she said where she was saying that, um, what was it? Oh, I can't find it. Oh no. She was like, time can't move backwards. It just can't. Mm -hmm. And I was so reminded of her, like trying to tell Miranda that like, (laughs) you know, I can't do it. There isn't time. I can't stop the storm. And I was like, you know what? Try harder. You're not trying, Andy. Anyway, um, I I loved her in this. I thought there was this weird thing about the sacrificial daughters that I noticed in this watch. Um, I know there's that trope of the girlfriend in the freezer in film, you know, the... the, Fridging, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, fridging. So this idea that you have to have, like, something bad happen to a woman you love in In order order to... In order to give the man an impetus to do something. And the one film I would say that does that and is still my favourite film of all time is John Wick. Oh, yeah. Well, well, admittedly, unless you actively want to, you know, the, the, I guess the logical conclusion of that is just the idea that, you know, bitches need to get hurt for the man to do something. Mm. Right. But at the same time... (laughs) That's that's what you and Ben talked about, I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in this film, you have instead this idea of the daughter. You've got the professor's daughter, played by Anne Hathaway, Mm. Um, uh, brand and you've got um, Murphy and in both cases the father kind of like sacrifices them Mm. and in the professor's Mm. case he does it without emotion like all of his messages to his daughter are basically just like let me read you a poem did you think about science today like it's it's so emotionless and it's that idea of that the the scientist who wears a white coat and is so separated from any emotion Mm. which is a motif that isn't necessarily accurate. And then you've got the the contrast of this like really difficult anger and resentment and love that crosses dimensions between Murphy and her father. And, 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 and um, Gambit's part was um, talking about before in regards to like, you know, the optimism behind this whole yeah. thing. That, that very idea of just like, you know, love is the only thing that can travel across space and time at the speed at which it does. That's an incredibly idealistic way of looking at the raw mechanics of space travel. And while 
I would say it's not the most accurate thing in the world, but then again, I genuinely think that double negative did literal magic with this, considering they managed to betray a fifth dimensional space on a two dimensional plane mm. with the ending. Okay. Yes. Or three-dimensional if you saw it at IMAX. Well, yeah. But, I, okay, I do have a problem with this. Love is the only thing that can transcend time and space and travel across because, like, hate can do that too. Yeah. There is nothing love can do that a strong hatred can't. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it, admittedly, to, um, to quote my personal favourite um, space writer, Douglas Adams, the only thing <laughs> that can travel faster than the speed of light is bad news, which tends to obey its own special laws. That's great. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty much is yeah, same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah look, I think that um, I, I would really like to get into some of the science with this with you. Because yeah. there are some questions that I would like to ask about the film. But on Kane's point about the optimism, I think that's probably like what I said before, I'm, I am the eternal optimist. It's one of my fatal flaws. But I think that's probably why this movie appealed to me so much. And, and probably think, the same for me as well. Yeah. Like I don't think I could have sat through three hours of a film that didn't have the hope in it, that felt ho- hopeless yes. the whole way through. And, and especially with like how recursive that hope ends up being, especially mm-hmm. when it gets to the ending, we see just how how much um, bootstrapping plays into the plot itself. Mm which I, I have to make considering it came out the same year as like predestination, which is even he- more heavy on the bootstrapping and the time travel, just absolute wonkiness. I honestly really like because bootstrapping itself is just such a fundamentally human idea as far as I'm concerned in terms of just like, you know, we literally bring ourselves into these situations. Mm-hmm. We're the ones backing ourselves mm-hmm. into these incredibly surreal situations. Mm-hmm. And, and again, especially with how it was visualized, like this whole, like, like corridors built on corridors of this one room, this one moment mm-hmm. extrapolated forever. It's, it's, it really is a kind of mind-expanding idea that could only work through the map, through the wizardry of CGI, quite frankly. It is fascinating. It, um, the Tesseract at the end is what yeah. we're describing. And I, uh, so I initially had issues with that because I was like, okay, but like, why the bedroom? And then as my wonderful brother pointed out to me, well, if you're talking about a future civilization that has the capacity to build and install a convenient wormhole, then like, why can't they make a Tesseract that has this, you know, the kid's bedroom in it? Like that probably makes sense. And I was like, actually, that's a really good point. In fact, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said something along those lines as well. At the same time, I can see that it's a bit of a deus ex machina to be like, oh, yes, but future humans are just brilliant. But, but at the same time, it was foreshadowed because remember, right at the start, um, young Murph comes into um, the parents' bedroom and actually says to Cooper, I thought you were the ghost. Mm. Mm. Like, right? Or, 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 or like, that's oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something like really pulled out of nowhere. It's Chekhov's ghost right up front there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, and that's I think I think um, that's the difference between, and we discuss this all the time, with a properly thought out script and a and a and a properly thought out story. All those visuals, all those special effects, all these ideas, all these concepts presented in the film 
won't work unless you have a nice cohesive story to go along with it unfortunately that's just that's just the reality it doesn't matter how good your cgi is it doesn't matter how great the acting is Mm. if the story doesn't draw people in and if it doesn't make sense if you can't get to the end of it and go oh okay like it 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 it, it had its beginning its middle and its end and our characters went through their arcs Mm. that they needed to go through and everybody was resolved at the end none of that other stuff means anything so for me from a movie perspective non-scientific non-cgi non special effects and on visuals this film works for me because it's a beautiful story there's great character interaction and yeah with everything that's been going on lately and as a parent as well like looking at that kind of scenario that situation of feeling like i don't i don't know what decision i would make in that situation would i go off for the off chance that i could save my kids and miss out on them growing up or would i stay home i think I'd have to say as a parent I would have stayed Mm. because and I would have been like I think this should be somebody else's responsibility and my responsibility is to my children I think that is the most heartbreaking point of the film for me Mm. when he's in the tesseract and he's yelling Mm. to to, yeah and he's like make me stay don't let me go don't let me go she tried and that whole thing of like parents not listening to kids Mm. like that really got me when he she goes you don't believe me yeah and he just gets up and he just goes yeah he doesn't like we we think that children and this comes to your point that you make all the time about making children's films thinking that children will just swallow anything that the kids don't understand things they do yeah and and but we don't listen to them Mm. we're still not listening to them you know whether you agree with Greta Thunberg or not Nobody's people. There are people who are not listening. The people are shutting her down because she's quote unquote a sixteen-year-old girl. And um, well, I'm probably I'm I'm going to say I'm the only person who can actively say this and be like, oh, she's just a retarded globalist puppet, and yep. like said by people who have even less free will of speech to even come up with their own arguments. But whatever. Well, exactly. Sure. It's, it's a. It's, but it, and so, so there's all this. But it goes back to that Santa Claus conquers the Martian view of childhood, which yeah. is that you know you should just be playing with toys and watching TV. Seen and not heard, and that's what it was interesting. What you said about the post-war thing. I mean, you know, the, it, it wasn't that long ago that parents were told not to love their children. Parents were told that love was weak and to show love to your kids was a bad thing to do. But that children to, died a lot as well. I mean, we always forget that the mortality rate for children was insane. But it, Yeah, but it wasn't so much about um, protecting the parents. It was mm. about protecting the children. If you love your children too much, you're going to coddle them and they won't be able to get on in life. And we've now debunked a lot of that stuff and we, we, we treat our children differently than we did in the 1940s and the 19... Yeah. You know, it's almost yeah. like love actually does have a certain scientific principle behind it. Right. So in light of that, what this film has to say isn't as ridiculous, but then again, considering the, like in terms of all the theoretical physics that basically make up the core of this movie in regards to um, you know, gravity being able to travel across time, you know, even comprehending the idea of being able to move and shape fifth dimensional space into you know stuff like the tesseract or even just like visualizing the inside of the black hole and all of its incredibly bizarre like again it is that kind of that cosmic horror you can't comprehend what you're seeing kind of aspect to it because it and that's actually something like inherent to all manner of film because it's always 
um, a two-dimensional display mm. for the most part once you watch like you know IMAX 3D cinema. Mm. Um, you know, three-dimensional space captured on a two-dimensional plane. And in, in that regard, being able to actually get across the idea of, you know, third, fourth, fifth on that plane, like, it, it is one of the situations where I would have to disagree with you in regards to if they didn't have a good story, doesn't matter how good the CGI is, because this is like prime, best of the entire decade kind of material, kind of the same reaction I have in regards to, like, Doctor Strange. It's just an added bonus that it is as much of a tearjerker as it is, because... It, it, it really is, like, so fucking depressing watching <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, like, watching his daughter grow up in between mm. messages and just being, like, you know, hearing about, you know, the son growing up, son having a kid, mm. kid not surviving. I see what you mean by the sacrificial daughters aspect. And <laughs> just, yeah, like, especially when, like, what you were saying in regards to, like, you know, hate... Mm. You know, travel as far as love, despair and loneliness travel mm. as much as that. Like the, the whole of you know emotional spectrum can travel just as far as any of its components. Mm. And in regards to that, there is something a bit, you know, there, there is something quite poignant about the idea of just like you know, in the few seconds it takes to you know flick a screen off and on again, you know, so, you know, someone very close to you could have aged into dust. In that in that instant, could they? Can you explain this to me? Is that real? The that, time thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is this um, a theoretical thing, or has this been proven? Okay, I'm gonna flag right here yeah. that I'm not a physicist. What? God, what are we doing here? Can I pack up your stuff? <laughs> um, I do. You're supposed to give me all the answers. I do know some things about it um, through. I sometimes say I like speak science as a second language because um, I grew up around theoretical physicists. But um, the whole relativity of time is a thing. I believe it has been proven, and it's also a theory. The there are some aspects. So for the most part, my understanding is the science in this film is pretty good. Okay, and I think it's actually a real testament to the film that it gets so much right that people quibble over the edges of it. Like the ice clouds. Yeah, like things like that where they're like, you know, oh, well, um, I'm going to quibble over like the specifics of like the singularity and where it sits within the black hole. And it's like, this is, uh, it's just incredible to me that a blockbuster film can have nerds on the internet and I, I consider myself one of them having these conversations. It's well, fantastic. Well, the, the same kind of conversations pop up when it comes to like well, just about any movie now. True. Because arguing is now an international sport. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I actually ran into a weird situation in regards to um, The Martian in regard, uh, oh, yeah. when it comes to like scientific accuracy. Like that scene where um, Matt Damon's flies gets cracked and mm-hmm. he literally like tapes it up with duct tape. I watched that in the cinema and I went... There's no way that actually works. And then I've read up and actually, and actually yes, that would work. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, okay, so with the science, the thing that I really do get in this film, and I've got to say it's a movie that challenges me in terms of my understanding of all of this stuff, which I also love because yeah. you watch so many movies that shy away from complexity. Yeah. I mean, even something like um, The Big Short, 
completely different scenario, but a movie that tries to explain complex concepts. There are some aspects of derivative trading that that movie just is like, nah. It's like, oh, it's too complicated. We're not going to bother with it. And it's like, I wish that it did bother with it because it's not so complicated that it can't be explained. Mm -hmm. And with this film, I feel as though the areas that were so complicated that they weren't explained well are so complicated that Kip Thorne even isn't quite sure. And so these are the very boundaries of our theories about relativity and about dimensions and about all of the way that these things work. I think with the wormholes, um, the way that they explained wormholes was great. I mean, but that is a direct... Um, a direct borrow from A Wrinkle in Time, which is the famous sci-fi book by Madeleine Lengel. Uh, fair enough. Although, admittedly, I will say that Interstellar is a better use of that uh, of pretty much anything from A Wrinkle in Time than the actual Wrinkle in Time movie. Oh, the movie! Don't bother with the movie. I'm talking about the books. <laughs> I'm a nerd, Kate. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, absolutely fair enough. And in regards to you know um, being able to. Um, portray like you know the wormhole you know the logistics of the wormhole with the you know two dots and a piece of paper it's a very Carl Sagan way of explaining it like being able to boil it down to its purest elements mm. which is somewhat fitting considering um, Kip Thorne and the producer he worked with directly in this film's embryonic stage they met because Carl Sagan put them together on a blind date <laughs> yeah so, so, like, in, so in its own way we have him to thank for this as well but, but in a way that a lot of it is explained it goes back to that way that we explain things to kids in high school or primary school science classes well we aren't telling them the moon landing is fake <laughs> <laughs> right I mean you know that's but, but see that's really fascinating because people say well isn't it dreadful that we're teaching kids things in, in science class that's incorrect well we do that all the time like we do that now I was taught I went to a great school and my textbooks were out of date and I was taught models of what atoms look like that were not up to date with the the current thought scientific thought at the time and I remember coming home and doing my um science homework and uh my brother had a friend over who was um a friend of his from the physics olympiads that he competed in and they were like looking at my textbook and laughing and being like, oh my God, it's like 20 years out of date with the major theories. But the view was, okay, well, we'll just teach them this because it's easy to teach them this. And I still think that, um, you know, th- this is in Sydney, right? This is Sydney with me growing up not that long ago. Whereas if you look at what happens in the US where people are taught creation science and um, – <laughs> And everything else. And the the rampant amounts of homeschooling. In fairness, Murphy also seems to get end up getting homeschooled by that random professor as like a, a, a prisoner inside NORAD in the mountain. Yeah. Which is a bit I weird. Too, yeah. But you know Well, considering all the stuff to do with the blights and just like, you know, being above ground probably isn't the best idea. I mean, yeah. But it, it, anyway. Um but no, with the so with the black hole. So the wormhole I thought was spectacular rendering. Loved that. The black hole, there's this quote in the movie, which I wrote down because it was just like so stupid, um, but delightfully so, which was the black, if the black hole is an oyster, the singularity is the pearl inside. Right. Yeah. Um, which. A little was, oversimplistic. Which is oversimplistic to the point of being like, what are you trying to get at here? Yeah. Um, and I was. I was, uh, so I had a chat with my brother about it and he was saying that 
since the film was made, there's actually more theory that has emerged and more evidence that's emerged to suggest that there isn't just one singularity in the middle of a black hole. There might be one there, but you'd actually get blocked from getting there by further singularities. So there'd be three um, on the way in, if that makes sense. So I'm out now. We haven't even got to dimensions. I have a great description for dimensions. And the thing with like Interstellar is that it's not like the hardest science in regards to sci-fi, but it is a lot harder than usual, especially when it comes to like, you know, stuff like Star Trek, Mm. which somehow think that, you know, like stuff like Event Horizons are things you can actually fight against because they're a physical thing and not just an aspect of physics that doesn't work that way. But the main thing that I think honestly surprised me the most about this is such a simple thing, and it's such a staple of science fiction across the board, sound in space. There isn't any. And Intercell is like one of the few movies that actually goes along with it because being ultra stylized and having like engine sounds is a lot more engaging than just the silence. But it, act- it actively does make some of the scenes, especially the scene of like McConaughey like hurtling towards the black hole that leads into the Tesseract. Like that moment where it's just like all you can hear is his breathing, and even that's being warped by the gravity stretches. But I assumed that was his own hearing of his breathing inside well, his suit. Well, right? yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's the only sound we actually get. Whereas, right, right, I see what you mean. Whereas, yeah. whereas with, you know, like so many other movies uh, and TV shows as well, they always do, like, portray, like, you know, the vacuum of space as if it can actually carry sound, which in some cases has been stretched so far, like, with, um, Jupiter Ascending, where it had that whole plot point about, like, this half-man, half-dog alien creature who can actually smell through the vacuum of space. Uh-huh. Where, that, that kind of crap. Okay. And so... And so, 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 like, so, like, even in regards to this, you know, not being the hardest, you know, not being the strictest, this is how reality actually works, science fiction, just through those little touches, like... Um, the somewhat rudimentary makeup of um, the TARS and case robots, as well as the lack of sound in space. It's it's like it's all the little things that give it a bit more, you know, reality. It, it, it's mm. like, but the, the I, am I getting this wrong? But the 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 robots, they're meant to be old because haven't they stopped making new ones? Like hasn't like technology on planet earth kind of come to a standstill except mm. for the secret nasa station so these are these are robots from like 20 years ago right i or love something. i love that they gave that to the conspiracy theorists and were like yeah there is a secret nasa and they're working <laughs> on the ground <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah so that's that's done on purpose right they're mm. trying to show that like outside of this secret space thing there's been no real advances in technology for a while except right farming. well the same is true with rockets our our rockets today are very much the same as our rockets have ever been. They just look prettier. Um, but the tech itself hasn't really developed particularly much. It's kind of the same technology that made missiles originally. And, and um, big, okay. yeah, you just chuck a big explosion on the end of something and it goes somewhere. You know, leave something behind. The whole thing where they, like, jettison the stuff to get out. It's, it's the, the physics of the rocket. <laughs> Um, uh, 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 speaking of um, the physics of the rocket, yeah, the 
Let's spin as fast as the space station thing. Yeah. Oh, that was epic. Is that even remotely plausible? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and I'm not going to say yes or no. However, um, it reminded me of the maneuver that was done uh, in... in the Fast and the Furious. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, when they're chucking the donuts. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, it was the one in the right stuff. Oh, right. Where there was this spinning spacecraft and they had to dock with it. And it was spinning and so they had to spin really fast to dock with it, which I think is based on, like, actual truth thing that happened. So the the concept of matching the spin of something in order to dock is very much a thing we do and we do that all the time, like, with stuff in in orbit. The thing was spinning really fast. And I think, I think, like, for me, the point of that wasn't – is this possible? But more what Matthew McConaughey's character said when he said, well, it's not possible, it's necessary, mm. which is that idea that under the right circumstances, humans are capable of doing pretty cool stuff mm-hmm. because otherwise they're dead. So they're kind of just like, well, we don't want to die. I guess we will match the spin and deal with it. And, um, is, and isn't that what... Um, and Anne Hathaway's character like passes out because that's what mm. happens when you spin really fast. Mm. Yeah. And isn't that what... Um, Unless you're younger than 10, in which case you just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't that kind of Matt Damon's character's point? Yeah, yeah, the survival yeah, instinct yeah, thing. That, that that's particularly people who have something yeah. to live for, like a child or... A Voiced by someone who himself is kind of like the worst case scenario for the survival instinct in terms of just my survival yeah. over, over anyone else's. Okay, so this is my fundamental problem with this movie. Mm. I like this movie. I will watch it. It's emotional. It gets me. It's visually beautiful. The science is pretty good. It's a, it's a good time. But I take extreme issue with the notion, like the fundamental basis of the film, which is that humans, like the best scenario for humans at any point will be to leave Earth and go somewhere else. The idea that mm. we that if we fuck up Earth enough, mm. that it's okay because science will save yeah. us and we will yeah. find a way to defeat gravity briefly to get off the Earth and, and like take the survivors there. Move to another planet, drain it of its resources. Exactly. Move to another planet and the And also, on. and it's that whole thing about like you know, human beings were born on planet Earth, but we were never meant to die yeah. here. It's like. No, maybe we were, yeah. but also yeah. um, that doesn't excuse us from trying to not fuck up Earth in the first place. Well, it's a, it's a, it's almost exactly the same as the whole you know, idea also that, some, that, that there'll be a day of reckoning in one day. Mm. Those of us who have done the right thing will be taken to the good place right. and the rest of us will be left here. <laughs> but also this idea of this manifest destiny of mm. human beings as a species that we need to ensure our continued survival to the extent that we'll send embryos to a random planet, Mm -hmm. that somehow this is the right answer. And I just don't buy it. Like, I just think... But it wouldn't make for a very interesting movie if they just fixed everything on Earth. (laughs) But it's a real thing. It's just what the billionaires in Silicon Valley think about. They're like, I'm going to save my genetics. Yeah. That was actually like a key plot point in um, Ad Astra from last year in regards to like, you know, we're trying to, you know, leave Earth and ostensibly its problems behind and move forward but you know all the you know global you know interstellar shifting in the world doesn't really shake the fact that we are an inherently self-destructive selfish shitty species species. (laughs) or are we i mean i think it's really amazing to me the way that we always try and justify or 
um, critique our behavior in reference to saying that we are a certain thing as a species. I mean, maybe we're not anything. We just are. We just exist and that's that. And we do stuff. It doesn't mean that we have a nature behind us. Charles' mind is blown. And, and that's the thing about nature and one of the things that, you know, kind of gets lost in translation when it comes to, especially with stuff like, you know, climate change and stuff like that. Like, there's this notion that, like, you know, nature actively has something against us, which... Right, that we're fighting nature. Which admittedly does have some basis in reality because, well, that's how we have anything that we can lay claim to. We altered the the natural world Mm -hmm. in order to create, well, everything from this bowl of chips and the microphone we're using to record this. Mm -hmm. Our existence is owed to fighting against nature. Or is it owed to working with nature? Like the so I'm not I'm not critiquing right, but you've got to give me this because I am a philosopher of science. If you look at the history of science, there's this move to to characterize nature as the female, and then if Mother you look Earth. right, and then if you look at the um, scientific narrative, it's like it's one of abuse against nature it's like we're 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 peeling back the layers we're taking off her clothes we're seeing what's underneath it's this very kind of rapey vibe and i i do well it's been used it, it, it's easy yeah. to rape, rape the land I, I, I honestly right thought about and like it we still think about it those before, but yeah and how do you feel not, i not gonna be able to think of that in that regard but it is totally a thing and i think when we think about fighting against nature as humans what we're actually thinking about is a more recent colonial mindset i was about to say this is a very western um yeah it's that that thing of we're explorers we're pioneers we're we're um we're i mean really they're saying we're colonists our job is to colonize we go places and and spread out and admittedly that's um like my um in regards to you know us fighting against nature i don't necessarily see well up until a few seconds ago, I didn't see it in regards to that, but I saw it as more of um, what sentience, um, what sentient thought allows a species. Like non-sentient life forms just see what is. Sentient life forms like us see what could be. Like being able to look at, you know, the empty plane that this building we're standing in was and going, what could we turn this into? But just because you can do something, does that mean you should? Well, yeah, exactly. And this movie seems to say, yeah, it seems to Mm. say not only should, like, not only is it okay to do what you're capable of doing, like, to the very edge of your capability, Mm. but in, but in fact, you have an obligation to do it and it's your destiny and you must. And the future humans have made this possible by putting the wormhole there. Therefore, this is what we must do. It's like everything, all of the, the, Everything is justified on the basis that they managed to solve the issue of gravity. And so much of it is predicated on lies as well. And, and this is something that, like, oh, yeah. that, that regularly... Oh, no, he means, uh, like, the, um, in, in, the story. In terms of, like, you know, the scientist who, um, you know, kept, you know right. kept information from his daughter, along with the, you know, fake Apollo landing, you know, stuff back on Earth... And that's something that is kind of consistent in Christopher Nolan's filmography. Like, all of his films in some way involve 
like how much easier it is to accept a kind of you know comfortable lie than an uncomfortable truth. Like mm -hmm. with the Dark Knight and how that ended, the Prestige, which is mm. all about trickery, mm. right down to Inception's ending, where we literally do not know what is truth. Mm. And mm. except with this, it actively like looked at how many people were lying, including Matt Damon's character in regards to the data he accumulated, mm. right, and still went no. No, we can't just accept this. And especially when it got to the point of them going, we can't allow, not just ourselves, but our people, our species, to die. We're not going to just go quietly into that good night. Mm. Mm, very good. Mm. I had one, please go on, one kind of final thing to talk about. Mm. So the one thing that I absolutely hate about this movie is Ooh. the moment when Murph discovers the answer to gravity and then throws her papers everywhere shouting Eureka and then kisses her random friend yeah and I was like dude this is not part of the story no. we don't give a shit about this guy he's yeah. just like some doctor that she knows by well, Topher Grace which means extra not caring right <laughs> she's fucking awesome and intelligent and like solved the problem of gravity and now you're gonna like make her kiss someone just so you can show that she's heteronormative like, a single woman no we must pair her with someone at the end for no reason other than they need to be no, don't if even you just get me cut, started on this shit if you just cut that scene yeah much better film would be yeah it's mm. you and you're right about fortunately there's so much going for this movie that you can forgive a few um of these little things that one is borderline unforgivable but i guess we're i'm just so used to it now just this mm. this the way we treat female characters in in film there's a reason why i keep railing against stuff like fridging mm. and you know the convenient last minute setup Especially like the third act breakup where it's like, oh no, I'm away from my man. I'm so sad. Right. Yeah. Let yeah. single people be, please. Right. And nearly all three of us, from my understanding, are in relationships, but at the same time. Yeah. It's just, it's it, the downplay that, that, that comes behind a move like that. Mm. The, the downplaying of her character, like you're saying, that, that, that in order for her, for, for that moment to be fulfilled for her, she needs to somehow express something to the male standing next to her is just weird. I mean, I feel like she wouldn't have even barely noticed he was there. She yeah. would have just been like, I've just, this is such an incredible point in my life. Why on earth would you? Or they me? could have just oh, like been like, oh wow, this is great. Emotional brains, it's all that controls them. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, and in the moment of their emotion, the first thing they want to do is kiss some random. And actually, that that was part of my problem with um, with Anne Hathaway's character as well. In that, she's the one on mm. the spaceship who presents the idea. The woman presents the idea that love is a good enough reason as any that emotion, you know, and that love can travel through time and space. I was like, well. If we'd had one of the guys saying that... Would you really buy it from Matthew McConaughey, though? Like, he's really good at being the everyman. I'm not so sure he's good at being able to deliver something that pinpoint idealistic. Sure, it does. It, or, but or my point is, like, it's just... it's just uh, For me, I was a bit, like... I did roll my eyes a little bit also 
of course that idea would have to come from a woman because a woman would act on emotion and not science even though she's a fucking scientist and I she's know. on a spaceship on a mission to save the and planet she's like, but she's totally decided to go and see her boyfriend she's like oh I want to go see my boyfriend <laughs> yeah it was an I was okay a bit, yeah I was a bit that, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't the best but you know it's been a few years since this film came out and I like to think that things will improve i think it's unlikely it was it was better than like most films of this sort totally yeah it It still is even with the trend that's kicked up in regards to stuff like martian and high life every time i say that i just keep thinking about how much high life might be the single horniest space opera (laughs) like it's such a goddamn weird movie it really is (laughs) i haven't seen it i'll have to yeah. I think we're going to have to finish up. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, look, concluding thoughts, um, it was, it, yeah, they were both interesting movies. Mm. For different reasons. For different, different reasons. reasons. <laughs> if I had to pick one to watch, I'd probably watch Interstellar over Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, no, that's it. That's all I want to say on that one. Um, but I really enjoyed doing this. Thank you oh, so absolutely. much for making the time and coming and being on the pod. Absolutely. And if people want to find more of your brilliant work and your excellent reviews, they should search up Movies with Kane and Tal. Yep. And, and if um, for some reason us rambling for 30, 40 minutes isn't nearly enough, I have, of course, the over a thousand reviews at Mahan's Media. Just Google M-A-H-A-N apostrophe S media and you'll find my last five nearly six years worth of work mm-hmm. yeah. and at which includes a review for interstellar where i go into a bit more detail although admittedly i wrote that during like my first couple months of blogging so it's not nearly as refined as it's <laughs> nowadays but yeah I, yeah if you guys want to check out more of my stuff feel free to Drop down to my neck of the woods. Right. You heard it here first. Go and check out Mahan's media and read some of those excellent reviews that Kane's written. And Tal, any projects you want to plug? Oh, no, no. Just, just movies with Kane and Tal. Just the pod. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Kane and Tal's regular podcast, Movies with Kane and Tal. You can also find them on Twitter as at Movies with Kane and Tal.